0: we're going to get started. Tonight in the book of Judges, we're only going to get a few chapters into the book of Judges um, before we'll uh, be done. And really, we're going to set up a couple of things that will hopefully help to make the book of Judges make sense or at least begin to make sense uh, as to what's happening in the book of Judges and how, how how we are to make sense of it. Um, just as a, as a reminder of, of where we've been and what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish, uh, we have seen that the children of Israel uh, have made it into the promised land. They've begun to divide up the land and begun to settle in the land. The book of Judges uh, takes up where Joshua left off and where the people of Israel are settling in their land and their job is what? What are they supposed to do when they get into the land? Drive everybody out, yeah, and that 's part of the subduing process, and yes, so they 're going to go in they 're going to subdue the land they 're going to have dominion there, and they 're going to drive the rest of the people out, and so that 's their job that 's what they 're supposed to do, so they 've made it into the land they 've given the tribal allotments, and just as a reminder when you 're trying to build a timeline in your brain, I think when it comes to studying history or anything like that for me. It always works best to figure out when in history this occurs Uh, is always helpful. So the best estimate that we're kind of working with, we don't have exact dates on the book of Judges, but at least sometime in the range between 1360 and 10, right about 84 or so, uh, Israel will start to establish a monarchy in 1050. So we know for sure the book of Judges is, is really coming to a close at that point, but Samuel starts coming up at about 1084-ish, somewhere around there, and so um, that's roughly when the book of Judges is done. So it's, it's going to happen sometime within there. We're not totally sure as to how much of that is the book of Judges, but it's in that window, 1360 to 1084. Now, What we did establish last time and what we saw was really profound and uh, just a a remarkable moment in history is that the children of Israel are able to walk into prime real estate, essentially, and take it and seize control of it. And with all of these powerful armies and things like that around and all these powerful countries around, how is it that they're able to do that? And what we saw is historically there is essentially a power vacuum that is kind of perfectly created right here in the middle. I was kind of thinking about that... um I don't know if this is actually a good analogy or not, but I was thinking about that, the game Thin Ice. You ever heard this? The, no, Don't Break the Ice. That's what it's called, Don't Break the Ice. It's these, uh, little, these little plastic ice cubes that are suspended uh, like this, and there's a little bear on top, and you're supposed to chisel them out without letting the bear fall. And it's kind of like that. All of the, the nations are kind of suspended over the land of Israel, and they're all kind of keeping each other in check so that Israel is able to walk into the land, take it, seize control of it, have the period of the judges, establish a monarchy in the land without anybody really trying to kick them out. And so uh, it's just kind of a unique period of history. Uh, we obviously saw this is, this is God's providential hand protecting the land so that they could get in and establish it and, and settle it. Remember, these are more or less slaves. That's phenomenal that some slaves are able to wander around the desert for a long time and then eventually just walk into a land and possess it. Uh, it's sort of, it should kind of break some categories for us, I think, when we, took, when we talk about miracles and how God works, obviously. Um, so that's where we are We are right now. They're in the land, they've established, they've, got, they've gotten their allotments, and their job in the book of Judges is to really continue to go about and to conquer the land. Now, when I was a kid, the term judges didn't make sense to me at all. Uh, I, I, I only think of a guy in a robe on a, on a bench that's, that's there making a pronouncement. And that's not too far, really, from the book itself, but it's a little bit different. See, these aren't kings. These are not people that are given a position by virtue of genealogy. These are random people that God uh, raises up. These are individual leaders that the Lord will raise up, and he does so so that they may push back against the people that are causing harm to the nation of Israel. So, what ends up happening is we're gonna to see tonight there's this vicious cycle that starts taking place from the nation of Israel. We know the book of Judges does not, uh, well, it, the very, very beginning of Judges is okay, but then not long into the book of Judges, it goes awry. And the nation of Israel starts going after other gods. And as they do, there's other groups that start raising up and attacking them and seeking to subdue them. And we're going to find out this is by God's providence. Eventually, they get so much in pain like we get often. We cry out to God, and they did too. And then eventually God delivered them with one of these judges. Um, These judges would rise up, and they would attack. They would lead the nation to attack uh, the people that were doing them harm and push back against them. Now, in the book of Judges, there are twelve individual leaders throughout um, these uh, the, this book. The individual leaders are Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzon, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. Um, yeah. Now, (laughs) I'm going to leave those up there. The reason that I've got the ones in bold that I've got is these are the more significant judges in the book. These are going to take the vast majority of the text of the book of Judges are these specific ones that we've got here bolded and underlined. So I'm forcing you to write them all down. (laughs) But Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson are going to take the vast majority of the text of, um, of the book of Judges. Now, these leaders, well, they're problematic, maybe. They, they're not always the most morally upright individuals, obviously. They can sometimes be some shady characters. However, they are going to be appointed by God as a means of of pushing back against the people that are in the land that they're in, the the people that are seeking to do them harm. Now, why are there people in the land that are seeking to do Israel harm? Because they were told, go in, drive them out. I'm going to drive them out for you. All this is going to be fine. What we find out is that it's a little bit harder to step out on faith like that, I guess. In spite of the fact that, you have, that your ancestors have seen the waters part and seen the waters come together and destroy Pharaoh, in spite of the fact that your forefathers have told you stories about being at Mount Sinai and hearing the voice of God and them telling Moses, we don't want to hear the voice of God because we'll die, so why don't you go tell us what he's saying? In spite of the fact that they wandered around the desert for 40 years and died and the earth opened up on, a number of, on one occasion and swallowed some people whole and, and they saw the smoke and the fire and the, all these kinds of things, in spite of all of that, in spite of the fact that they walked into the promised land and people were running from before them, in spite of all of that, um, Israel, it turns out, loses faith that God is actually going to do what he said he's going to do. Not just what he said he's going to do, but what he's done in the past. That's a huge thing for them. But we're going to find out why. There's actually a very uh, not not good reason in the sense that it's beneficial, but there's a reason why that they they don't do this. Um, What we do see, though, at the very beginning of the book of Judges... Is that the Lord was continuing to give the land into their hands. Um, so it's not, it, it turns out it's not all bad. I mean, you read verse 8 of chapter 1, the men of Judah fought, I didn't include this in your verse list, I'm sorry. Uh, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it. That's temporary, but they captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set it to fire. Um, from there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. They named Debir. Uh, the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, "He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give Akesh my daughter and wife." So they're going uh, against all of these people, and they're driving them out, and they're continuing to do what Joshua had done with them in the beginning. And so the Book of Judges opens, and you're like, "All right, hey." They're obeying. They're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. Well, at least for a little while. Um, so the Lord is continuing to do this. The, uh, but shortly into the narrative, the author gives us some indication that there's going to be a failure from Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Look at um, Judges 1, 27-36. Somebody read that out loud for me.
1: Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And
0: how far? Uh, all the way to 36. Okay.
1: And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Ketron among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron, or the inhabitants of Nahal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Allah or Oxy, or Elba, or Afi, or Reho. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Bethanoth. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Bethanoth became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres and Ajalon and Shabim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the Lord of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Aquabim, from Selah, and upward.
0: Anytime we have complicated names, I'm going to get Blake to read. He's it. uh, <laughs> um, it's okay. You don't have to be right. You just have to say it with confidence. Uh, that's, it. that's it. So there is a failure on Israel's part to actually follow through with what the Lord has given them to do. The, the children of Israel just, it turns out, don't want to actually go to war. They don't want to do what the Lord is requiring. Now, why is the Lord requiring them to drive out the people of Canaan? Yeah, there's, there, it turns out there's, there's really two reasons. One is, uh, uh, one main reason, if you keep them in the land, you will follow after their gods, period. Um, second, it's a means of judgment. So we know that for sure. They're going into the land and they're burning it to the ground because these people have worshipped pagan gods for far too long and God has been patient with them. And so Israel is judging them. So then, what does it say about Israel when they don't follow through? Well, certainly it says that they're faithless. But what else does it say? Yeah. They don't see a threat of following other gods.
2: That's right. It's so this burning of the of this land these people an offering to him because back in we had those the first offering the first fruits given to Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. So there are uh in a multitude of ways this is problematic. You don't fear the Lord and remember you don't hold him up as holy in front of the nations. Similar to how Moses didn't hold him up as holy in front of the people, and he was condemned for it. He was not allowed to go in the promised land for it. So when you do this, especially in front of the nations that don't revere the name of God, you're basic it's, it's tantamount to taking the name of the Lord in vain, right? And so they're going in representing the kingdom of God. Remember, we've we've said that what God is doing is establishing his kingdom on earth. They're going in establishing his kingdom and yet they're taking in vain his name in front of the people. This is essentially the same thing that Adam does. Adam and Eve do in the Garden of Eden. Is there his vice regents? They're the first couple that's in charge with establishing his kingdom on earth and instead of obeying his rules they again curse his name more or less they take advantage of their position and so does the nation of Israel they see it as a pragmatic in a pragmatic sense we can go in and practically it makes a lot more sense to enslave these people and have them work for us than it does to drive them out Why would we actually want to engage in battle? I don't like war. Why would I want to do that? I could just have them work for me. So what does the Lord do? The Lord is actually going to leave the inhabitants in the land of Israel as a means of discipline for Israel. This is a very, maybe hard to wrap your mind around, but the angel of the Lord is going to talk to the nation of Israel, and we're going to see that in judges two, one to three. You can look on your verse packet there and you see. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohim, and he said, "I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers." Just pause for just a second. Just an aside. Who's speaking? Okay. Technically, who's speaking? Say say it as it said in the text. What is it? The angel of the Lord, right? But what does he say? I. Okay. So just bake this in your mind for just a minute. Uh, I don't know of another instance where something like this happens that's not the angel of the Lord. Okay. Um, so. Most of the time, a messenger has a word from God. What will he say to the person? Thus says the Lord. Letting you know this is a message not from me, but from the Lord. Who was the one that led the people of Israel out of Egypt? What is it? What? Yes slash (laughs) no. Yes, it technically was a pillar of fire. That was the image in front of them. Okay? We have an answer. It was God. He actually tells them, I'm going to give to you the angel of the Lord who is going to lead you. So the and when Moses encounters the burning bush, who's in the burning bush? The angel of the Lord is in the burning bush. So uh, who is the angel of the Lord? pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, a uh, long way of getting to the answer. We get kind of like this, and it's very difficult to sort of wrap your mind around, but the angel of the Lord, when it says an angel of the Lord, that's with intention, that's an angel of the Lord. I'm just going to say that's an ordinary, run-of-the-mill angel. angel. All right, <laughs> yeah, it's just regu- you'll just be regularly scared to death. Um, But when it's the angel of the Lord, what you see is that people behave differently. Certain things happen in the scene that's a little bit different on most occasions. We're going to see this happen with Gideon in a few weeks. We're going to see, I mean, just a bunch of different things happen strangely. When we see the angel of the Lord or also called the commander of the armies of the Lord... Um, he appears before Joshua at Gilgal, and Joshua walks up to him and he says, you, Joshua says, okay, are you with us? Or are you against us? And he says, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Take your shoes off. The ground you're standing on is holy. That's different than an angel of the Lord. That's Moses in the burning bush. I am. Okay, so this is pre-incarnate Christ representing God uh, so we might say the second person of the Trinity has always been the representative to man from God always okay before Jesus of Nazareth is born the pre-incarnate Christ is still active in the Old Testament okay all right It's a lot of hand motions okay uh, <laughs> where was I oh yeah we're reading okay so he says I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare for you. Uh-oh, we're in trouble, big trouble. So they lament and they do all kinds of things to pretend like they're sad about it. Um, and <laughs> so we go on. I, I, I wanna read the next uh, verse before we get to the next point because I, I think you're gonna see, I, want, I wanna see if you can pick up the phrasing here because this is intentional. All right, Judges 2, 10. And all that generation also were gathered to the Father. So Joshua dies. Now the beginning of the book of Judges opens with Joshua's death in like the first verse, first couple of verses. But then you'll notice that Joshua dies, it seems like again in the midway through chapter two. Well, he doesn't die again, obviously. This is uh, Joshua dies. Wait, before I get to that, let's turn and look back at what happened while he was still alive. They started to drive everybody out, but then they decided not to, Then Joshua died. Okay? So it's kind of like a looking back at Joshua's life. Now we get to the point where Joshua has died, and all the generation that served with Joshua, that watched the the Lord do all the things that he had done and lead them through the land and lead their forefathers across, or their their fathers across the the Red Sea, um, they've all died. They're all gone. All right? Then it says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Does that do you hear some similar phrasing there? No what. Say it louder, Blake. There was a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Yeah. Remember when Egypt was or Egypt, when Israel was in Egypt as slaves. Well, at first they weren't slaves. They were in the land of Goshen. They had prime real estate. And Joseph was the reason they had that prime real estate. He was there in Egypt serving Pharaoh, and he was prestigious, prestigious. Sorry, sometimes it just comes out. He was prestigious in the land. Everybody respected Joseph. There was only one person who had more power and authority than Joseph in the land of Egypt, and that was Pharaoh. And so because of Joseph... Because his family was a family of Joseph, they got prime real estate in Goshen. And they grew and were prosperous. And then Joseph died. And we saw that when we were back there, probably what's happening is an entirely new dynasty has moved in and taken over in Egypt. And so the Bible tells us, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Now, what does that mean for the children of Israel They're in Egypt when there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Yep, they've lost their place, and what are they headed for? Slavery. Slavery. Now, the author of Judges does a kind of uh echo to this where they're going into you know, they're going into slavery in Exodus because there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. What do you know about the children of Israel when they? Arose a generation who knew not God. What's going to happen? They're going right back into slavery. Now, where does this end? Where? where? Somewhere else. Where? East. What? East. <laughs> East. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, yes. That's where it ends. <laughs> where does this end for them in the story? It ends in Babylon. uh, he he jumped all the way to Jesus okay I'm okay cutting across the field and hitting the cross that's fine I'm good with that but but perhaps a little too quick Uh, before then it will end in Babylon it will end in slavery again so the author of Judges is sort of giving you a little bit of a clue that this is not going to end well For the children of Israel, the difference being, this is by their own doing. This is from their own hand. They were the ones that made this choice. And the choice that they made was to step out on faithlessness. And instead of doing what the Lord had asked them to do, had commanded them to do, they thought pragmatism is a little bit better. We know better. We are wiser than God. And so instead of acting on the Lord's wisdom, just like Adam and Eve before them, just like Israel will do for the rest of the generations until Christ, we're going to go at it on our own. Jeff, do you have, is this a question? Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or is it like them inventing their own form of judgment on the Canaanites? Um, whether, whether their motivations were to kind of seek revenge or not, I, I doubt it. I, and here's the reason I doubt it. They, uh, which I'm going to mention in just a minute, they were not taught anything. So when, when he says here in, 10, uh, in 2.10... Um, or the work that he had done for Israel. They're not taught any of these things. They're about as far removed from slavery as you are from George Washington. Right? So, not that far. But it, pretty far. Right? And, uh, and, or from World War I. Let's say it that way. So, how much revenge are you seeking from events that happened back in the 1920s? Not. You're not, Right? And so I don't think that that's the case here either. What, what I think is happening, remember the, the Lord tells them, when you get into the land, we're going to do this slowly. He tells them, we're going we're to take the slow route to drive these people out. Why? Do you remember? Yeah, so the animals don't overrun it. Yeah, because you, if you drive everybody out, you're going to see that this is a massive piece of real estate. And you drive everybody out, and you're not going to have anybody to maintain it. And so it's going to get unwieldy really fast. And so he says, we're going to take the slow route. And I think probably from their perspective, it's, a, it's strictly pragmatism. It is, we, we go in and we go, look, look how much real estate we've got. We can't possibly tame all this by ourselves. Let's enslave the people instead and they can work it for us. Does that make sense? Is that sinful, I guess? Yeah, because they were supposed to kill him.
1: probably not sinful
0: for the reason you're asking but that's what they were supposed to do kill them or drive them out and they didn't and so so yes it's (laughs) sinful i know that wasn't the question you were asking but go go ahead
2: Uh, in our culture like it's not tolerated or it's not loving and then I think well, that must not be what he wants me to do but that's not the gauge (laughs) you know does this make sense what I'm trying to say so uh, the gauge for what is love is God himself and what he has commanded us in scripture is what we are to do and if we uh, if something rubs up against us the wrong way in the culture and we hear that's not loving from the culture if we choose to side with them then we're disobeying Christ. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say is like, I cannot imagine being a part of Israel and as a wife and a mother looking at um, foreign children and having to like bash them in the head with rocks or murder them in some way. And I can see how I would convince myself that must not be what the Lord wants me to do, right? Mm-hmm. So there must be something more loving that I can do. But that in, it, in and of itself is simple and not fearful of the Lord because I'm saying that better than him, mm-hmm. and it's raising myself up as God instead of honoring him. Mm-hmm. The
0: of the yeah. just echo
2: back to the garden? Did God, did
0: he really say? Did he really say, yeah? Oh, yeah. The root of most yeah. Unbelief, but yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It calls back to the garden. Then we look forward to, to Christ. Um, The logic, so this is, we talked about this back when we started the conquest when uh, when we started talking about the conquest, the first thing we dealt with were the ethical complications of Israel going in and conquering the land and uh, the question about genocide and, and all of those sorts of things um, which we won't revisit too much tonight but um, one of the things you have to keep you have to keep in mind is that as creator of the world he reserves the right to judge the world and That's not the rubric we use for anything we do. We don't use that filter at all. Um, We think, you know, a, a person, well, as an example, a person caught in adultery, do we kill him? Of course not. However, Paul tells us that the kingdom of heaven is not for. And he gives a list of people, the liar, the adulterer, the Homosexual, the, a list of people, right? So, what does he tell us God is going to do then? If the kingdom of heaven is not for them that practice this, these sorts of things? And what is that judgment? So, the conquest of Canaan is a foreshadowing of end times judgment and in the meantime there is an opportunity with the presentation of the gospel for people to turn and repent to find forgiveness in Christ and be spared of judgment Rahab we're all Rahab We've all heard the gospel. Well, hopefully. We've all repented, hopefully. We have become Rahab. But it shouldn't lessen the severity in our minds of what end times, judgment, final, great white through all judgment should be. We're not lessening that, are we? No, we're not. We're we're saying this is very real and it's going to happen. And you can look at Joshua to see that what God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he's going to do in the future. So when we look at that, it, it, it it should allow us to say with confidence, there is a judgment coming and it's going to be by God's hand and he is going to purge the evil from among us once and for all. And so you have an opportunity to hear the gospel, repent, and believe. And Paul ends that section in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, with verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. So lest we get on our high horse and say, yeah, yeah. Are you liars and adulterers and homosexuals and all this? You, you deserve hell. Well, so do we. Such were some of you, but you were washed. That's, that's, the, that's what we're giving to people, right? Is because, precisely because he really will judge. He's done it in the past and he'll do it in the future. Um, but now, uh, after the death of Joshua the author of Judges makes it clear that Israel is headed back into slavery, first to false gods, to the people around them as well who are going to be thorns in their side, and then ultimately we get some kind of foreshadowing that one day this is going to lead somewhere east of Eden, so to speak. This is going to be in Babylon. Um, in chapters 2.11 through three six what the author tells us is that this is going to be a cyclical pattern and the whole account of Israel's history is built on this. For the next 300 or so years, Israel is going to fall into this pattern where they seek after the the gods of the Canaanites. They end up getting into skirmishes and being oppressed by the people around them. They cry out to God. God raises up a deliverer. Once they're delivered, they rejoice, they worship the Lord, they go right back into pagan idolatry. It's just a, a cycle throughout the entire, entire book. Um, so the Lord sent enemies against Israel, uh, both to punish them and to cause it to return to him. So this is a, a, a pattern that the Lord is clearly doing. He said that I have a hand in this. I am leaving them there so that they will be a thorn in your side. To, one, to keep you humble, but to keep you to, uh, returning back to the Lord in repentance. So when Israel would repent, uh, Yahweh would again raise up these judges uh, to deliver the nation. And then He would restore peaceful leadership. Sorry, it jumped twice on me. He would re- restore and provide a period of peaceful leadership for the people to, uh, to fall under. However, after the peaceful leadership... Israel would lapse into apostasy once again, and the chain of events would just happen again. So it's just this endless cycle. Every time. Do what? Every time. Yeah, it tends to, yeah. Yeah, it's a downward spiral, right? <laughs> Not an upward spiral, it's just a... That, that's, that's right, it is a, a toilet bowl, is a good way to describe it. Now, the... This is so. If we get in our mind, the Book of Judges is going to set us up for this perpetual motion machine for Israel that is really going to continue all the way through Babylon. This is going to continue really for the most, the rest of the Old Testament. Though they'll go through prolonged period of peace, uh, more prolonged periods of peace, and that kind of thing. It will be more or less the same kind of pattern for the rest of the Old Testament. What it's also going to set us up for. Is understanding uh, giving us a sort of a background of the Canaanite religion. Um, the Canaanite religion is going to pervade uh, all the levels of Israelite life through uh, from the period of the judges to at least through the Babylonian exile. So the Canaanites are are really in the story. They're there to stay, more or less. So they're going to continue to be that thorn in the side. And um, we can gather as we read not only the Old Testament, but as we read this extra biblical literature, stuff that's found in archaeology, we start to pick up details about what the Canaanite religion uh, and the religions are really like. And so it helps us maybe a little bit to understand some of the language that we're going to encounter when we get to things like 1 uh, Kings, Second Kings, when we start seeing why the kings are judged and what makes a good king versus what makes a bad king, uh, some of these, some of the terminology that's established in the Canaanite religion and in the book of Judges is going to help us to understand that. So as we think about it, uh, as we think about the, the Canaanite religion, they believe that the forces of nature are expressions of divine presence and activity, and the only way that you can survive the uh, God, as it were, is to figure out which deity is over that thing, whatever it is, and find a way to appease that deity. And so the pantheon of gods are over various things in society, like rain and thunder and lightning and fertility and all kinds of other things, and you figure out how to appease that god, and, uh, and, and then you can have prosperity and peace. right? That's kind of the hope. That's sort of the idea behind it, much like you'll see in other pagan religions. But what we're also going to find out is these gods are fickle. So, uh, because why? Well, if the god is the god of the weather, I don't know if you've lived in Alabama for that long, I've been here for two years. Texas was the same way. The weather tends to be fickle. So, if he's the God of the weather, well, he must be fickle too. There's drought, there's famine. Then there's all of a sudden flood. It seems to be either flood or famine. And so, he must be fickle. He's either mad at us or pleased with us. Well, not too pleased. <laughs> you know, I mean, so you're just constantly trying to figure out a way to appease the God. So, there's three main ones that are going to show up really, two main ones, and the, the L is going to be kind of fade into the distance you'll hear him somewhat in uh, some of the Old Testament texts, but El is the head uh, of the pantheon of gods, or at least was the head of the pantheon of gods in Canaanite religion. Um, then we're going to have another goddess, Asherah. Asherah means uh, happy, uh, walks upright, or it can also mean Pole. And so you're going to see Asherah sometimes resemble a pole, a totem pole, essentially. But Asherah is the wife of El. She is the goddess of fertility, and uh, she provides basically for the whole earth. So everything you see growing, uh, her symbol was a, a tree at one point, an evergreen tree. So everything you see growing and, and and life given to it, that's Asherah. That's the benefits of Asherah. And then you have uh, the last one, which is probably the most familiar to you, Baal. Uh, he's the master of the land. He is the storm god of Canaan. He's the god of the rain, the thunder, and the lightning. And in Canaanite religion, he was the one that sort of, he kind of took over as the head god. There's this sort of mythology in Canaanite religion that Baal becomes powerful and mighty. He usurps El. And kind of kicks him off the throne and takes his wife too. And uh, so there you go. Uh, Baal. Okay, now, just as a, this is, I, I hope this is interesting to you. I think it's interesting. I find this interesting. You kick over a rock in somewhere in the Middle East and you find really old stuff that's, that's hidden over there. This is a statue of El from about 1400 BC that they found. So, that's L. It is in the University of Chicago Oriental Institute Museum. You can see it today. So that is that's a kind of a, a representation of L. Here's the next one, a representation of Asherah, uh, found in about 600 BC. I want you to note something here on this statue. You can see, not to be too graphic here, but provision coming from here. This is the sea that she holds in her hand. Represents of the sea. So she provides all forms of life, water. She, she gives life, essentially. Um, 600 So these gods, by the way, are worshiped for a really long time. They're worshiped all over as well. So we see El, for instance, or Baal. Baal goes by a lot of different names through the Mesopotamian region. Pops up, I mean, early on, 3700, 2700 BC, uh, all the way up to... I mean, she's there in 600 B.C., so it's a long history, a long lineage of worshiping. these. Now, the last god, of course, is... Well, that's Baal, okay? <laughs> Just so you know. That, that's Baal, all right? B-A-L-E. Sometimes you may see it B-A-I-L, okay? That's also Baal. A lot of farmers in Alabama... That... Uh-huh. Yes. Worship That's right. The, this is baal okay aa is not a diphthong it's two separate yes all right it's two separate syllables it's baal okay um, i had a i had a lady one time i sa- i said baal and she came up to me and she just fought me tooth and nail that it was bail and I was like, I even, I got to the point where I was so exasperated, I spelled it for her in Hebrew, and I said, this is two different syllables, just like it is in English. You don't, now a lot of people say S-K-I-I-N-G with just one syllable, sking <laughs> but it's "skiing," right? Okay, same way. Okay, Ner- nerding out. Uh, Canaanite. Do what? Canaan. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> Uh right. not on uh, night. Right,
1: no.
0: Uh <laughs> 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 Do it. It's interesting to me. So the fact
2: that the head of the pantheon is named El, right? And when we talk about God, we talk about Elohim and he uses that name for himself. distortion of what the true God is, it's like a distortion of that, and then used for demonic purposes, or does that make sense, because in the beginning, like, I think everyone knew there was one true God, I mean, God makes that clear that people know him through his creation, but maybe don't always know his name, I don't know, I'm just curious about, like, back long ago, where does
0: this come from, the word El? I think the word El in Hebrew just means God. And so I think it would be as generic as saying God. Like we would say God. You encounter a person on the street and say, do you believe in God? And they say, yes, I believe in God. They may be as pagan as the day is long, but they believe in God. And then they go on to tell you about how they believe in God and what kind of God they believe in. If you were sitting down talking to a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, a Muslim, you would talk about anybody and you said, do you believe in God? All of them would tell you yes. And all of us are part of different religions. Um, and so I think that's kind of the same kind of deal. Because when, when Moses encounters the angel of the Lord at the burning bush, what, who, who do I tell them sent me? Right? And that's when he gives a formal name. I am, Yahweh. So, um, Yahweh Elohim, right? Uh, so Elohim would be the Lord, uh, right? But um, so he, he's, he's giving a formal name, Yahweh, and telling him, that that's who you can tell him. I am sent. Me, sent. Um, so I think the term El is just sort of a, a kind of a generalized term for God. And you're going to see this a lot. In fact, um, you'll see the names of El, and you'll see the name Baal appear in the name of cities, and there's a reason for that, because those cities are dedicated to the worship, normally those cities are dedicated to the worship of that, or historically they had been, okay? Does that make sense? So it's, it's, sometimes it's more of a general, El, God, and then other times, Baal, this is a specific God we're, we're worshiping, um, there's a formalized name for that, that deity, as it were. Um, does that answer your question? Kind of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go ahead, Blake. No, nope, no. Nope. Uh, nope, nope. um, okay, so quickly, I want to get through a couple of these other things. The, uh, the rain, All the rainfall and things like that was attributed to Baal and was thought to represent, um, I don't mean to be too graphic again, but was thought to represent his semen dropping to the earth to fertilize and impregnate the earth with life. So you can see where the mythology of him taking Asherah for himself and the worship of Baal begins to grow. And so they begin to worship Baal. And then the mythology of him taking the wife of, uh, of El and, and impregnating Asherah and, um, and giving life between the two of them and them being... Yeah. So anyway, um, you can kind of see where this starts to come from. Well... Uh, so the, what happens then is the worship of this God begins to mimic the God himself. That's what happens. You are what you worship. You become what you worship. And so what do we see happening with the cultic practices of the worshipers of Baal, but that it's heavily driven towards sex? You, you find that to be very, very common. So the cultic prostitutes, both male and female, Began to play principal roles in this drama as they started to enact the uh, behavior of Baal and Asherah. And so uh, they sort of become what they worship. Now, the reason why a lot of that is important is because these places that they establish to worship um, their deity, I gotta sneeze, I'm sorry. I guess not. Um, These places were originally built on hills, and so they called them high places. The reason that's important is because throughout the book of Kings, you will see, and he tore down the high places, or he didn't tear down the high places. This is the evaluation of a king. Was he a good king or was he a bad king? Well, he didn't really listen to the voice of the Lord, but he did tear down the high places. Well, he listened to the voice of the Lord and he tore down the high places. So you're checking two boxes at that point. Tearing down the high places is destroying the temples that are built on top of these hills. Temples that are built to to the worship of Baal and to Asherah. So um, that term, high places, is really, really important to understand how Israel is becoming influenced by all of these um, gods, these Canaanite gods. Um, you'll see lots of cities and things like that take on the name of Baal and um, various things like that. So, questions about that? Okay. Um, So, the book of Judges sets the stage for all of the narratives to follow. In fact, not just in the book of Judges, but on into the rest of the Old Testament uh, where Israel is going to be repeatedly oppressed by the surrounding peoples. And um, they're going to keep continuing to oppress them. I, I want to read Judges 3, 1-5 to here. Now these are the nations that the Lord left. L- listen to the phrasing of that. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by, by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced All the wars in Canaan. (laughs) Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the uh, Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount uh, Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon As there's there's another name, Baal Hermon. As far as Lebo Hamath, they were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which He had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those are bad names. Who's leaving them in the land? the Lord is leaving them in the land. But I thought, wait a minute. They're supposed to drive them out? Yep, they are. The Lord is the one that drives them out. The Lord could drive them out without the Israelites. But he left them in the land to test them. But why is it that Israel has such a hard time in the beginning stepping out there to drive the people out. Why is it that they have a hard time doing that? Go back to the original thing. Why, why is it they don't? They have a hard time doing that. Fear, lack of faith. Why do they have fear? Why do they have a lack of faith? What's that? That was before. That was their dad. Their their parents did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they really their grandparents did. Why is it that they are fearful? Why do they have a lack of faith? God parted the water. He spoke to them at Mount Sinai. He led them across the Jordan River. He drove out people before them. Why is it that they have a lack of faith? Why do they have fear? They haven't been taught. Look at what he says. Judges 2:10, first page, bottom verse. All the generations all the ge- and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. There arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What is the command that Moses gives to in Deuteronomy 6 gives to their fathers? Teach them. They're going to forget. What did they obviously not do? Teach them. It's amazing. So why do they fear? Because their parents neglected to teach them. Um, I I come back to a couple things I said a couple weeks ago. Uh, We have, as parents, just and I I think I can speak for virtually everyone living generationally, totally neglected teaching our children doctrine of the faith. And for one reason or another, felt like that was somebody else's responsibility. And you, I think it's easy to Wail and bemoan the state of the world today or the state of the church today? Because it's, it, we can look at everyone else and say, it's all your fault. You're the one that did this or didn't do it. When do we look in the mirror and say, it's actually our fault? We didn't teach them. I mean, how many of our people feel like they grasp complex doctrine? How many of our people complex doctrine actually appeals to them? They actually want it. I can tell you, it's not many. Why don't you go in the biggest churches that are out there whose pastor hasn't written a book, okay? Let's just, let's take some of them off the, off the plate, all right? Let's take John MacArthur off the plate, all right? Let's take, let's just say, the, look at the biggest churches that are out there. What do they teach? Many of them are teaching heresy, and the people don't even know it. They're sitting in the pews. Bill Johnson, Bethel Temple, it's heresy. You got the Jesus culture up there singing great songs, and everybody is rushing the stage. They got smoke machines and lights, and it's amazing. But when you actually create a church where the order of worship includes a confession of sin, people wail and bemoan the fact that we're actually doing that. It's boring. It's madness. But it's our fault. We didn't teach our kids. Doctrine doesn't even appeal to them anymore. Um... I think we're going to continue to pay for it until we decide my children are my responsibility. I have to take responsibility for their upbringing, for their raising, for their training. I have to do that. That's me. That's my responsibility. So a book that begins from verse 1 with the tribes cooperating in conquest will end with the tribes entrenched in sin fighting against one of their own. You notice that? Beginning of the book of Joshua, they're fighting to drive everybody out. We're working together. At the end, we're fighting against Benjamin. It's amazing what sin does. It's amazing what ignorance does. It's amazing what a lack of training does. It's amazing what one generation neglecting their responsibility as parents actually does to the faith. Say again. One generation. One generation. One generation. What is it? We there are so we live in a day and age where we do have to be careful. There are so many good resources out there. The things that we have access to at our fingertips. There's no excuse for ignorance. It's just not. There's always going to be things you don't know. There's no excuse to just throw your hands up and go, "I don't know the first thing about." teaching my kid doctrine my word there are so many resources out there for you I can give you a handful that you can go away with but the training of your children is your responsibility questions, comments, concerns go ahead Jeff
2: no go ahead Jesus. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Jesus, <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: he's the only one. Um, all of all of the Old Testament is building the case that the fall really did do something. It really did create a people who cannot save themselves and who are deserving. That's the thing: who are deserving of divine judgment. Jesus is the only one that changes that. He is not deserving of divine judgment. <coughs> and he's, one of the on- he's the only one who gets it perfectly. Divine judgment, I mean. He gets it perfectly, laid on his shoulders. The generation that's then celebrated are the ones who are gathered around the throne at the end of Revelation. And they're there, because of Jesus. That's it. <clears throat> the whole Bible is making that point. Exactly. Other questions? Yeah. I,
2: I just wanted
1: to say two things. One,
2: unless we become defeated that we haven't trained our children well enough yet, or as adults, maybe with adult children, haven't trained them well enough yet, like it doesn't mean that Christ isn't still able to save and work Doesn't take away our responsibility, but through prayer and supplication and through a strong witness, now we can still have impacts in our lives. Um, I think that's important just to mention. And two, (laughs) when we think about um, like, was there ever a generation, even though there wasn't a generation, I think God is in scripture. There's nobody here that loves you, and I'm the only one. And God's like, stop pitying yourself. I've reserved these people that have not melted the veil. Like, there's always, or Daniel in Babylon. Like, there's always someone, I think, um, God is at work. And we don't understand the details of all of that or how it all works. But I think he, um, even though there's not full generations, and we need
0: Christ. To be. But there's also not full people. Right. So even Elijah... Who, that scene occurs right after one of the most monumental scenes in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 17 where he actually goes and kills the prophets of Baal and because he is prophets of Baal uh, <laughs> where he, he uh, because, because of their idolatry after this just incredible experience on Mount Carmel Carmel I don't know um, Carmel <laughs> Mark, Mark Car- <laughs> Mount Carmel uh, but he he kills them, and then she threatens him. He leaves, and now he's not doing it right. Right. So even the people that do it right don't totally do it right. And that's the author of Hebrews' point in Hebrews eleven. Right? Is that they live by faith, and they don't do it all right. There's some shady dudes in Hebrews eleven. There's some shady ones in Hebrews 11 and he's saying they live by faith. So they don't even get it all right. It's not until Jesus where what you're asking for comes to full fruition. Other questions? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word, and it's a good reminder that we uh, we trust in your mercy. Where we are deficient, where we perhaps have neglected responsibility, um, what it bre- what it reminds us of is that we sin. I neglect the responsibility to train my own children because I'm tired, or because I don't think about it, or. Because it's so much easier to just not do it. And so it's a good reminder that even in my negligence, um, I require your mercy and your grace and to know that no matter what I've got, it's, it's never going to overcome my own sin. And all I can do is just continue to trust that you will provide and that what training and teaching we do give to our children, you multiply and you work and that even the teaching and training that we give is not sufficient to save. That it requires a work of the Spirit. It requires an opening of the eyes by the Father. So we we don't We're not even able to do that. Nevertheless, you have given us a responsibility, and so we confess that we are negligent in some cases in that, that we trust maybe sometimes in our own abilities in that, or we put it off on other people. And so we ask for your forgiveness, and we ask that whatever We do have that you would multiply and allow us, as we bring up our children, to to know, give us wisdom as to how to parent them well, lest they get old and forget what you have done for us. May we, as parents, be ready at a moment's notice to share our testimony with our children that we were slaves to sin. And that you saved us. So that they know beyond the shadow of a doubt, I know what mom, I know what dad believes. I pray, Father, that you would give us that in our church. In our churches. That you would raise up a generation of parents who understand their responsibility. Who take it very seriously. Who revere you and your name above all other things desire more than anything to worship you and to bring others into that worship. Please do that in and through this church, the churches of Tuscaloosa, in Jesus' name. Amen.